I had a dream I was following a barefoot girl beside a stream That flowed around the world We spoke of many things There were mouths never moved As the most peculiar scenes were disappearing into view Oh, what a dream Beyond the realm of pretty little The man with the blue guitar, it had no strings But the music touched the stars His long dark curls turned to gold before my eyes The barefoot girl smiled off to the side And it was real Then a thousand birds took flight with a joyful noise And I heard the angels up on high I could see my face and I recognized the voice Hush, baby, sweet baby Hush, baby, hush It's just a dream One of those that goes on and on Scene after scene With the rhythm of a gypsy song When I really woke I was frozen in between Didn't know who I was It was a dream inside a dream It's just a dream Oh, what a dream It's all a dream Joan Baez with a track from her new album called The Dream Song. Was that recorded with a with a string quartet or just with strings or what's the uh, what's the was Quint- it a quintet? Mm-hmm. Joan Baez is my guest. She will be spending some time with us along with her friend Paul Pesco and they've got guitars and they're going to do some stuff live and we're going to chat. You look wonderful. <laughs> you look I I saw you I don't know where it was. I was like I was punching the buttons on the television remote control and you popped up somewhere. I don't know, VH1 or Entertainment Channel or something like that, and you were being interviewed somewhere, and I just went, man, Joan just looks so good. You look happy. You look content. You look... Ah, I got them all fooled. Yeah, really? Because you look like you're no, really I, like at peace with the world oh, and everything. 
Say it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's um, uh, a pleasure, and uh, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. I'm to, very uh, very happy to be here. To Thanks. finally get to shake your hand after uh, after all these years. <laughs> that song is called the Dream Song, and it was co-written by Joan Baez and Ron Davies, mm-hmm. um, who I remember from a bunch of years back. He recorded uh, a number of solo albums years ago on the old A and M label, which was one of mm-hmm. the labels that uh, you were on. That's correct. Um, yeah. At one point during your career, is he like uh, Nashville? Base now, he is what? a Nashville songwriter right now, yeah. You did a lot of co-writing I on, did, uh, I on did. this new album. That was my big, scary new step in my life yeah. that I'd never done before. You had written before. Mm-hmm. I'd written in clever isolation and come up with some things that were so, sort of okay. But I had everything to learn and still have just about everything to learn about songwriting. So um, this experiment... Took me took me to Nashville five times to keep meeting people and and writing and pushing myself or you know through and across these barriers I had of 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 co-writing with people it was just scary. Mm. You know? Let's talk about that in just a minute. Okay. I have to um, pause here for a couple of commercial words. This being a commercial radio station, <laughs> and um, also identify the rest of that music that we played in that set. It was Lou Reed, of course, with Coney Island Baby, the title track from that album, one of the great classic Lou Reed songs, and a band from Holland called Betty Servert. I guess. I mean, I'm probably mispronouncing the last part of that, or Servirt, or something like that. Um, title track from a new album of theirs called Palamon. This is Idiot's Delight. I'm Vince Gelza. Joan Baez is my guest, and we'll be back right after these words. The classic rock station and home of guaranteed 20-song music marathons is WXRK New York, 92.3 K-Rock. It seems some of the best sales has changed. Have you kept up? 1-800-FIND-NYU, extension 3, now. There's still time to register for the spring semester, but you have to hurry. Come down to Shimkin Hall at 50 West 4th Street and register in person. Late registration ends February 5th. Don't miss out. Now, let me tell uh, Joan Baez and Paul Pesco and everybody who's listening right now what's going to happen at the bottom line over the next couple of weeks. I'm sure that Joan is interested. February 5th and 6th, and, and then every Wednesday in February, there is a sort of a theatrical presentation. Um, featuring Darlene Love. Well, it's Darlene Love actually starring in um, something called A Portrait of a Singer. It's Darlene Love's life story in concert. Darlene Love has performed with um, just about everybody, Sam Cooke, uh, Elvis, Sinatra. She even performed with Doris Day and Gene Autry. <laughs> uh, there's something that, that uh, Joan Baez has performed with just about everybody, but even Joan Baez has not performed. Well, now, maybe I shouldn't say that. Just watch it. You know? <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that. Did you ever hang out with Gene Autry? No, I just missed the Sons of the Pioneers. But... <laughs> <laughs> All right, so February 5th and 6th are the opening nights of this um, uh, theatrical presentation. And then every Wednesday night in February, you can see Darlene Love in A Portrait of a Singer. Then on uh, February 7th, it's A Joyful Noise. Why are you doing that to me? Okay, well, let's see. We can. That may help them a little bit. No, or that may help them a little bit. Or that may help them a little bit. Um, February 7th, A Joyful Noise, live, a celebration of contemporary gospel uh, featuring Yolanda Adams. And um, uh, let's see, on February 8th, it's Riders in the Sky. On February 12th, you can celebrate the 19th anniversary of The Bottom Line um, with a very special evening starring The Roaches, Maggie Terry and Suzy Roach. February 13th and 14th, it's an evening with four bitchin' babes. We go from... Three wonderful roaches to four bitchin' <laughs> to four bitchin' babes. The bitchin' babes, of course, feature Christine Lavin, Sally Fingeret, Julie Gold, and Megan McDonough. 
On February 15th, Luca Bloom will be at the bottom line. February 18th, Jude Cole. February 19th, in their own words, a bunch of songwriters sitting around singing, hosted by me, Vince Skelsa, another in a continuing series. This one is all sold out. Sold out in less than a day. Joan Baez, listen to this. You'll be impressed by this. In less than a day. Um, I went on the air last Sunday night and said, trust me, go buy your tickets to this. I couldn't announce the names of the performers yet. Um, This is a series which, by the end of our little visit here tonight, I'm going to ask you if you want to participate in. We've been doing it for about three years now at the bottom line. It's it's sort of like a symposium, like Mm -hmm. a songwriter's symposium. And we've had a wide variety of people over the years. We generally take about four people, put them all on stage together, Mm -hmm. guitars and pianos and stuff, totally unrehearsed, totally spontaneous. We talk about songwriting. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the performers illustrate the various points that are made by singing songs. So last Sunday night, I said I couldn't announce the performers yet because we weren't quite prepared to do that. But I said, trust me, it's going to be a heavy-duty show. Go buy your tickets. Mm -hmm. By Monday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, both shows were sold out. I here's guess, here's I guess your word is good. Here's yeah, my word is good. All right. Here's who's going to be there on February nineteenth. Luca Bloom, mm. wonderful um, uh, songwriter, singer from Ireland. David Byrne, mm-hmm. Roseanne Cash, and Lou Reed. So you didn't sucker anybody. No, did I didn't. Huh? <laughs> That's wonderful. Luca Bloom, David Byrne, Roseanne Cash, and Lou Reed, and hopefully someday. We'll get Joan Baez up there with um, with a couple of other songwriters. Maybe yeah. maybe some of your co-writing partners. We'll talk about it. Okay. Right? We'll talk okay. about it. Anyhow, that's all sold out. February 19th. February 20th, Blue Rodeo will be at the bottom line. February 26th and 27th, it's the Fast Folk Music Review. And on February 28th, Asia will be at the club. Asia featuring Steve Howe. And that's it for February. Because 30 days have September, April, June, and November. All the rest of them. Except February, which has... 28. This is not a leap year this year, I don't think. So it's only 28 days in February. For more information, call the bottom line at 212-228-6300. That's area code 212-228-6300. 15 West 4th Street in the heart of historic, gentrified Greenwich Village. You want to see what a Joan Baez person I, uh, <laughs> what a Joan Baez person I am? I have an original hardcover copy of Daybreak. Joan, a Joan Baez book that was published in what, 1969 maybe? Mm, or 60, no, 68. 68. 68. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I love to do with old hardcover books is check the price. Three three ninety five. Those were the days, my friend. <laughs> we thought they'd never end. I mean, you can't get a hardcover book for less than twenty dollars these know, days. I but I have my original copy of Daybreak. Well, I guess I'm gonna have to sign it. When I was. Um, I don't know how old I was, 16 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, the Christmas after John Kennedy mm-hmm. was assassinated, All right, John Kennedy was assassinated in November, a couple of weeks later. My mom, who I was like going through some struggles, you know, I was a junior in high school, I guess, and, and I was going through that beginning, my, my adolescent rebellion thing. My mom was feeling bad for, you know, like the way everybody was feeling bad mm-hmm. that winter. And um, specifically, she was trying to, like, reach out to me. She was mm-hmm. trying to sort of um, make some sort of contact with me and my musical taste. And she gave me, uh, for Christmas that year, two record albums. Mm-hmm. One was um, the Smothers, Bro- Smothers Brothers, a live album called Curb Your Tongue, Knave. <laughs> and, the <laughs> and the other was, I guess, the first Joan Baez album on Vanguard. Um, the one that was just called Joan Baez. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, 
to this day, I have both of those albums. They're both unplayable because I played them so much. But you're still talking to your mom? I still talk to my mom, <laughs> and I still remember very fondly um, the fact that she used those albums mm -hmm. to reach out to me to try and make some kind of uh, um, a contact across what was then being called the generation gap. Right, you know? yeah. So um, uh, not only do I, do I have that gesture in my heart and in my memory, but you're intricately involved mm -hmm. in that gesture because I took that, I took that, those albums and and most especially your album went up to my my room up in the attic, you know, and played it over and over and mm -hmm. over and over and over and over and over again. So uh, uh, I'm I'm just so thrilled to have you here because you're such an important part of my life. Um, not only then when I was 17 years old, but um, throughout. Uh, Several decades now. It's been several decades. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So how you feeling? How you doing? Very well, thank you. I'm very happy with the decision to have done something serious about my music, which was floundering, you know, in a sense. And a uh, decision unlike my usual decisions, you know. I hadn't really taken the task on of just applying myself to music, vocal, everything. Why is that? I think um, probably lots of um, subterranean reasons, and then the reasons that I felt were that I always felt that the politics was more important and other things are more important. And I think it's, it's also riddled with psychological stuff. I think working for my own career and my own music was somehow a no-no in a, in a puritanical upbringing, you know. And so I had to battle a lot of things to even make the decision to hire new management, to get myself a serious record company, to take the time and to not fly halfway around the world to, to uh, you know, a march from here to there just because somebody asked me, you know, mm. but to say no to that, I'm trying to learn how to co-write, I'm, you know, doing things which are honoring my voice and my music in a way that I had really never done before. I'd done it when it was convenient, but as soon as it was inconvenient, I did something else. What, when was it convenient? Was it convenient early on? Yes, it was very convenient early on because in those days, the social and political atmosphere lent itself to what I did. That was all just kind of chance. There I was with that particular kind of voice, liking that introspective, thoughtful, ballad um, at an introspective time, and then I also was highly politicized as a child, and then that developed in the music a couple of years after I'd started singing, and I became easily, totally involved in the civil rights movement, and then in the, you know, the anti-war movement as a, as a nonviolent activist, and in those days, the singing was simply part and parcel of that. Mm. And then that became, at literally at the end of the war in Vietnam, there was, it was like a, a, a dead end for that kind of acceptance of that, of, mu of that kind of music. In a, some kind of strange way, that's what happened. Well, and I didn't adjust, really. I didn't find it easy to adjust to anything else other than what I was used to doing. As, the, as, as what we called or what was called the counterculture mm -hmm. back in the 60s, which mm -hmm. you certainly were at the, at the head of, mm -hmm. as that became the mass culture, yeah. um, with, as you say, the end of the war, and also with Woodstock and with the commercialization of, or, the, or the, the real intense commercialization mm -hmm. of the music, that's sort of the period that you're talking about. Right? Well, then I think after in the late 70s and 80s, there came a kind of a strange vacuum in many things, a spiritual, educational, 
Um, there's a thought vacuum, an idea vacuum. It seemed as though young people floundered and just kind of sat around wishing they'd been at Woodstock. I mean, I heard that mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of times. Boy, I wish I'd been there. I wished I'd lived in those days when things were happening. Um, and whereas in other countries in the world, they went, things went on happening. I mean, most recently, the Berlin Wall, the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, Tiananmen Square in China, all these incredible things going on, apartheid. Apartheid was, in fact, the first time, in a sense, that young people connected with something outside of themselves. We'd become so cocooned in this country and, mm. and so inward. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I think that now is the first time in the 90s that there's been a kind of a, a lightening of the spirit and a feeling of re-empowerment may be possible now to do some things. Uh, what do you think is the cause of that? I think the immediate cause is the change of administration. I don't think that need necessarily mean very much. It, I think it depends on what people are willing to do. Mm. If they're going to sit around and wait for a miracle, then probably nothing will happen. I mean, do you think it's just a, a, there's a, a cyclical kind of a, a, a nature to this? I mean, is it time for the pendulum to swing back? Um, past the center and towards the left again? Well, it had already gone over the top, you know, so it's time for it to come back down. I mean, there was such a case of unfeeling, um, uh, you know, just out of touchness with, certainly with the Bush administration, for uh, what I know. The Reagan years and the Bush years. Yeah, at uh, least Reagan, in his funny sort of way, had a personality. (laughs) 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 He wasn't somebody I wanted to hang around, but he did, you know. And those were, the the Bush years were certainly quiet years for you. Those were years when you were not doing much in the public eye. Well, and what, the, the curious thing about music is that you can do all you please, um, musically, but if you don't have an album people are hearing, you're invisible, mm. you know, and you really become dead to them. And then I think what what it was the final push for me was the fact, of a realization of two things. One is that, I mean, to be a legend is quite an extraordinary thing. I wasn't happy being a legend in the sense that you feel as though you died in the <laughs> 60s mm-hmm. for so many people. To be updated and contemporized now, then it becomes absolutely lovely to be also a legend. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at the same time, I realized that the vocal cords do not have elastic in them forever. My social and political activities will go on until I keel over into the grave. Nothing can stop that. But vocally speaking, there are X number of years left, and I wanted to take advantage of that. Was was there a, a pivotal moment? Was there like an epiphany? Was there? Did you wake up one day and say, aha, it's time for me? Well, there are a couple of them, yeah. The first one came five years ago, and I was tootling along a highway in France after having given a rather dull, boring concert of material that was not fresh. And I was sort of scratching my head and wondering why anybody had bothered to come <laughs> see this concert. And I said to the person who was driving me, who was a, a good friend and a very serious critic of music, I said, I don't know, maybe I should just sort of grind down to a, to a halt and go do something else. There are lots of other things I want to do. And he pulled the car over to the side of the road and he said, you can't. 
<laughs> I said, why? And he said, because you're the only person in the world who does what you do, and mm. you do it well. Yeah. <laughs> so that started me thinking. And then in the middle of making the record that came out just before Play Me Backwards, which was a few years ago, in the middle of the night, I woke up and I thought, what am I doing making an album that nobody except my immediate family and some good friends are going to hear? I can kill myself trying to make a beautiful album, but nobody's going to hear it. And what do I need? And that's when it hit. I need the management. I need all the things that I did not have. I was mm. totally disorganized and all over the map and grumbling a lot about why doesn't anybody <laughs> hear my music. So it did hit. There was a kind, there were a couple of aha nights. So you, so you needed to plug into the business end of the music business a bit more, I guess. Huh? Well, totally. Yeah. Uh, but I'm incapable of doing that. I, it doesn't exist anywhere in my system. The left brain went to sleep, you know, <laughs> pre-birth. And so the only, it had just enough up there happening to, to tell me to go hire somebody to do that for me. Yeah. You know, and so I you know, interviewed lots of people and I think I found, well, obviously I have found the right person who didn't have any glamorous ideas that anything was going to happen overnight. This has been very, very hard work and incremental and very gratifying, very challenging and lots of fun. Yeah. The album is um, uh, unique for you in that there's a there's a sound on this album that I don't ever recall hearing on a Joan Baez album before. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've had wonderful albums uh, back in the in in the early days when you were basically playing alone. Mm -hmm. There was not much to to do <laughs> with that, happened, you know. Yeah. Um, but even when you were working with bands and going to Nashville mm -hmm. and playing with you know all kinds of folks, the the, the productions have always been competent. They've always sounded mm -hmm. contemporary. But there's something about this album that just jumps out at you. I mean, there's just a striking sound here. I think tons of credit goes to Wally Wilson and Kenny Greenberg. They were the producers, and we sat around, basically fought for months. <laughs> uh -huh. And what I was fighting really wasn't so much them and their ideas. It was my own rigidity. It was my own um, image of what I thought that I my limitations were. And they kept pushing me past those limitations, and I was fighting the fear that if I pushed out of what I was so familiar with, then I wouldn't be me anymore. Yeah. And they did it carefully, not terribly diplomatically all the time, but at the end of a day, I would realize that my limits comfortably pushed out that much farther. And then I was like a little kid. I got all excited. Wow. You know, yeah. like hiring a Brazilian to come up and do the percussion and really concentrate on percussion for the first time. Think about it. Work with it. Um, those things were, I mean, at the very beginning of my career, when I was 19 years old and working on an album, I thought that if some other, other person played with me on the album added a drum or something that that was sinful huh. and when i died i'd go to hell you know so now you, I, you're not exaggerating right? no i am I mean, not exaggerating yeah, uh -uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that virgin mary stuff had you know part that was sort of in some ways that was sort of true about mm. my puritanical um, approach to the music yeah. there's a but you know you talk about breaking um uh, the mold and and pushing boundaries and stuff like that and yet there's a real direct relationship um Back to your early work, um, mm -hmm. and and this album, and, yeah. and for instance, the the the, the biblical song mm -hmm. on the album is um, something that you did over and over again mm -hmm. early on. I mean, you were mm -hmm. constantly doing those old ballads. Mm -hmm. all the, what was that guy's name? John Jacob Niles, <laughs> and mm -hmm. and all those other weird names that you made all the you made like hundreds of thousands of people look up and learn those wonderful old songs, yeah. and and yet there's this song called Isaac and Abraham yeah. on the album that harkens back to that, and yet mm -hmm. uses percussion. Mm -hmm. which is what you're talking about, mm -hmm. to create um, a whole new sound for Joan Baez. 
Hard times, hard times in Canaan land Trouble in the mind of a man A voice came whispering softly to him Go offer, offer up the land Abraham took his only son The righteous, the righteous boys you die. Abraham most mysteriously laid down that deadly knife. Said, My darling son, I wish I was the one who spared, who spared your precious life. I guess um, I guess your voice is deeper now yeah. than it, than it was back then. It does. My coach gracefully pointed out 15 years ago: at a certain age, gravity takes over everything, uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> including the voice. Yeah, that was one of the kinder images of <laughs> taking over the vocal cords. Right. But if you took that song and removed the percussion from it, you could put that back on that on that album that my mother gave to me. Well, it, it came would've... from House Carpenter. If you yeah. hadn't, fit. yeah, right. The, we were just hanging out with the percussion player. Said, "Yeah, we ought to just do something to this Birnbau, which is the name of that instrument." And uh-huh. We started humming this tune. Where is that instrument from? Oh, Africa or Brazil. I don't uh, know which. Okay. Um, Joan Baez is my guest here on Idiot's Delight, and um, you'll do something live for us. Love to. Now? Sure. Okay, good. Okay. It's all yours. Joan Baez and Paul Pesca. Okay, we thought we'd do um, Play Me Backwards, which is the title song from the album. And it has a couple of meanings, one of them a sort of joke on the fact that you never had to play me backwards over the last 35 years to get what it was I was something your cranium about <laughs> you mean you mean Allah take taking a Beatles record and and turning it backwards and having Paul is dead come out or I buried Paul or well whatever? actually the truth is the song is also about um, incest and satanic abuse yeah about which mm, there's a huge controversy right now with people coming up with a thing called false memory syndrome people who really don't want to believe that there's such a thing as incest and that there's such a thing as ritualized cult abuse and this song is is in fact about both of those things now this is the title track of the album Mm -hmm. this is the opening song on Mm -hmm. the album this like th- don't worry th- nobody's figured it out well, I mean, I, but, <laughs> but there's almost there's almost like a, a real declaration of intent here there this is. is not what you're used to from Joan Baez oh, that's you know? true and yet it is I mean yet you know, <laughs> and yet your 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 social awareness you're actually bringing this subject shouldn't up. shock anybody yeah, exactly yeah, okay <laughs> don't have to play me backwards to get the meaning of my verse you don't have to die and go to hell to feel the devil's curse. 
the golden days of childhood so lyrical and warm? Or did the pictures start to fade on the day that I was born? To see them light the candles, I've heard them bang the drum. Let the night begin, there's a pop of skin and a sudden rush of scarlet There's a little boy riding on the goat's head and a little girl playing the harlot There's a sacrifice in an empty church, the sweet little baby rose And the man in the mask from Mexico Joan Baez and Paul Pesco live in the studio. Idiot's Delight here on 92.3 K-Rock. Includes uh, facts. And I, whenever I sit down on the airplane, I ask the guy next to me whether <laughs> he knows anything about a PowerBook 170. Because I have I'm, no idea what that is. Oh, it's a laptop computer, and it's just absolutely magnificent. And put matching that up with my 
sieve of a left brain. It's not an easy thing for me to do, but I'm determined to learn it, yeah. and I love it. You know, I, I wrote, you're writing on it now. Yeah. Then, huh? mm-hmm. Do you keep? Do you write like? Do you keep a diary or a journal? I or do anything? actually. I do all of that stuff, but I don't. I haven't been keeping a journal in in that. Uh-huh. But I do poetry in that. And see, we travel in a bus when I go on tour, which I love. I absolutely love. It's calming, and there's no rush to the airport, and you just kind of fall onto that thing. And I can use a a computer to write. Um, whereas you can't really sit there and scribble very mm, well, right, so uh, I'm pretty excited about it. this. Is, I just got it. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about fax machines here, uh, uh, <laughs> very specifically now, because you have a laptop computer, and mm-hmm. so when you go home, you need a fax machine at home, right? <laughs> you need the new brother Intellifax series fax machines with uh, ACS and Thermaplus. Now, you want to know what ACS is? Uh, ACS stands for Anti Curl System. And as the name denotes, uh, this system, which is um, uh, built into all Intellifax machines, means that your faxes come out perfectly flat. Um, they're uncurled, so they're easy to easy to read. <laughs> I mean, I'm, that's what that means, flat as opposed to uncurled, which is important, you know, because when you get a fax and it's all curled up and you got to, like, hold it out, like, it, you feel like you're sort of like a, a medieval... Uh, uh, scroll uh, reader. Yeah, you know, you got to un, you know, unravel yeah, the scroll do. here. You don't have to deal with that at all. You got one over there? Does somebody have a fax over there? Is that what I heard happening? No? Okay. All right. So you don't have to worry about that with the Brother Intellifax series. It does everything a plain paper fax machine does, but costs about $1,000 less. The Brother Intellifax machines come with special Thermoplus paper that feels and looks just like regular, plain, ordinary paper. It can be written on with a pen or a highlighter. There are no fading problems, and the faxes received can be filed um, without making a copy. All Intellifax fax machines are compatible with regular thermal paper as well, and they're available at JNR Music World, PC Richard, Macy's, and um, Allied Office. I heard John Hyatt, um, uh, who uh, you have a song, one of John Hyatt's songs on your new album. John Hyatt was talking about writing songs with somebody via the fax machine. He was. There you go. I ain't he, talking. Yeah. All right, so they would they would fax each other lyrics and lyric changes back and forth. But Hyatt said that in fact he had a problem where a month later he went back to a specific lyric because he wanted to work on it and it was gone. Uh-oh. It had faded away. <laughs> well, if he if he would get himself one of these um, Intellifax series machines from Brother International, he wouldn't have that problem. Yeah, there you go. All you right, see. see? Now, <laughs> in addition to co-writing songs like that song "Play Me Backwards," you of mm-hmm. course have um, continued on the new album to um, discover um, or or um, in in some cases just kind of latch on to. How about scrounge? (laughs) (laughs) Steal, rob, scrounge. You know, well, right from the very start, I mean, you pretty much started out right at the top. You were the person who introduced Bob Dylan to the rest of the world. I mean, you were the person who, you know, found this guy and said, hey, you know, let me sing your songs. And Mm -hmm. and since then, you've been recording um, songs from the top songwriters. And um, uh, on the this point note- with this was, I really didn't want to cover, do any covers, and Hyatt's is the only one that had actually been recorded before. Hyatt had recorded mm-hmm. that song. Now there's a Janice Ian Buddy Mondlock mm-hmm. song on the album called Amsterdam, yes. which has not b- been recorded. Right, I know, right. I know. I talked to Janice about it, and she said she was thinking about doing it maybe, mm-hmm. and then she's uh, just prolific. It makes me sick. Uh, I mean, she has this heap of things to choose from. So she said, eh, "Sure, go ahead, take it." I mean, I can mean I can't even dream of the day that I'll be feeling like that about uh-huh. something I've written. That I had enough stuff lying around that I could hand out. She actually gave me three songs to do, 
uh, you know, that she wasn't going to be doing. Joan, how does that happen? Now, I know Janice lives in, in Nashville now, and I know she is, is doing very well as mm-hmm. a songwriter. She is. Um, as opposed to necessarily being a recorder of her own songs mm-hmm. or a performer. Mm-hmm. Um, how does how does Janice Ian give Joan Baez three songs to choose Joan, from? Joan Baez calls her up and says, help! <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to do something about my career. I want to do a serious album. I want to get involved in music she said come to nashville and visit me and i'll introduce you to songwriters and you have to write and you have to co-write period mm-hmm. you know she said there just isn't any other way you know when i began singing it never even dawned on me to write for the first 10 years i never wrote a song i was an interpretess of folk ballads right. basically right. You know? Now, when now when you arrived in Nashville, did you plug into that whole um, appointment scene? Well, let's see. I've got an 11, a 1, a 3, and a 5. And you say, what the hell are you talking about? And it turns out <laughs> these guys are writing songs with people at 11, at 1, at 3, I and know. at 5. No, I arrived in Nashville with the most god-awful cold, one of those anxiety things that you get where you can't breathe uh. and you're hacking and, and sort of knocked feebly on her door and said, hi. And she was smart enough and polite enough not to mention the fact that the cold is probably coming from the fact that I was in this state of terror, you know, this whole thing. And, and, and it was, and we joked about it. Yeah. But anyway, she sat patiently around with me for three days, and we talked about songwriting. We didn't try to write a song right there. It would have been silly. I didn't even know enough to start, you know. Had you guys had a relationship back we'd in the never, old days? We'd never spent any time together, but it was a definite mutual admiration um, mm. situation, very much so. What was it about this song, Amsterdam, that appealed to you? Oh, well, let's see. Out of the three that, that I was sort of testing of hers, it, it's just, it's a magnificent song. I mean, some of like old... Holden said, you know, after Stones on the Road, it is the song on the album. It just qualifies as a timeless song. Mm. But you you take it and make it so personal. I mean, mm-hmm. I get the feeling that it's you, Joan Baez, wandering those streets and you, Joan Baez, <laughs> having this relationship, yeah. um, uh, which I guess is, is um, a part of uh, your artistry. Well, if you don't, if I don't feel... If I can't visualize those streets and visualize that sadness and the disappointment and the drama of it all, then it doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And that song obviously was not difficult to get into.
That's a song that Janice Ian co-wrote with Buddy Mondlock, and that's Joan Baez's version of it. It is on um, the new Joan Baez album called Play Me Backwards. Joan is my guest here on Idiot's Delight. Uh, on Super Bowl night, do I take this to mean that you're not a big uh, football fan, that you are not, uh, you weren't home glued to a TV um, all evening long, or what? Actually, I came into my hotel and uh, <laughs> called down to order dinner, and the Pakistani, I gather, uh, gentleman who was speaking on the phone said, do you want to order the Super Bowl special? <laughs> and I said, ah, what is it? Well, buffalo wings and beer. I said, no, I think I'll stick to my salmon. Thanks very much. That's as close as I got to it. Buffalo wings and beer. Great. <laughs> Super Bowl special. Well, is it, it? I guess it's over, huh? 52-17? Boy, is it over. <laughs> yeah. the um, Dallas over the Bills. I don't know what that means. Is that an upset or is that what the... Paul, do you know anything about the Super Bowl? Are you a sports guy or what? Not, not a big sports fan. No. All right. So, uh, Boy, what a lousy room full of I know, people. Gosh, what a bunch of like a feet, you know, old hippie <laughs> types here. It's like, God, boy. Um, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not. Your absence was very noticeable at Bob Fest, you know, what mm-hmm. Neil Young called Bob Fest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had, remember when I said I'd made a commitment to this little career of mine? I had just set up the concert the opening concerts for this disc and the first one was in um the troubadour in los angeles it was the same night as bob's show Uh and i was sure that he would forgive me uh, figuring that there would be thousands of people there yeah you you should have been there i mean i understand the conflict and everything but you were certainly missed well thank um, you by by everybody do you you see him at all do you talk to him at all i haven't in a while yeah yeah I've, I one of my favorite um, movies, and I'm, I must watch it twice a year. Is um, the Penny Baker film, mm-hmm. um, Don't Look Back, and you were part of that. You know that whole crew that traveled around <laughs> in Britain in what 1964. 64, or, yeah. Yeah, that was an amazing, total, total madhouse, amazing man. scene, amazing time. Um, did you crash after all that? I, mean, <laughs> I crashed you... during it. Couldn't you, couldn't you tell by the film? That was not the healthiest move I ever made in my life to stay on that tour. Yeah. It yeah. was uh, Dylan's creativity was just monumental at that stage, and it doesn't necessarily make somebody easy to get along with when they're doing that. Yeah, yeah. So. But I, I guess the, the question I'm asking you is uh, taking that tour as being sort of uh, symbolic of that decade almost was there a period the the way dylan crashed after that you know Mm -hmm. literally and figuratively with Mm -hmm. that that motorcycle accident that may or may not have been as serious as Mm -hmm. it was or wasn't but there was a period there where he just had to like really come down he had to come down off the high life off Mm -hmm. the drugs off the craziness off the intensity Mm -hmm. of it did that happen to you too I don't know anybody that in one form or another that doesn't happen to. And I think it's because with a big amount of fame, particularly if if you're young, there's no way to see beyond that. Mm. Um, And I rejected fame, and I wouldn't go with a major big, big company, and I was anti-commercial for all of my own puritanical and frightened reasons. I don't regret having made those choices at all. But even with all of that, I was just, I mean, I was uh, on a pedestal. And and at some point, reality is going to hit one way or another. You can't be protected in that position for very long, or maybe for a while. I mean, a lady die, you know, mm, just yeah. the dream ends at some point or another. Then you have to figure out, you know, how you're going to construct, reconstruct, or construct your life. Because you know? people 
people are people. I mean, Joan Baez is still jo- Joan Baez, a person, you know. And, Always and, was. <laughs> and but but if you get put up on this pedestal mm-hmm. and you become this legend in your own time, you become the the queen. You know, I mean, back mm-hmm. in the '60s, it was Dylan the King, Joan the Queen. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's got to be so unreal. It's not very healthy. Yeah. I mean, very tempting, you know, uh-huh. deliciously tempting, <laughs> but, but uh, not very healthy. Yeah. Would you, would you take us back sure. uh, a bunch of years to maybe something from your repertoire that you were performing uh, yeah. when we first heard you? Very, very early on, say when I was about 20, <laughs> in um, the folk clubs of Cambridge.
That's Joan Baez and Paul Pesco on uh, guitar. Live on the radio here on uh, Idiot's Delight. This is 92.3 K-Rock. Joan, you mentioned earlier about being um, politicized from a very early age, from childhood on. You grew up in a very kind of um, old-fashioned, left-wing, radical family, did you not? Well, I don't know. I think I grew up in an old-fashioned Quaker family, so it was more uh, traditional pacifism that they uh, were pretty public about. And so the, I was I radicalized the family with the when the pacifism grew out of that and into nonviolent action. It's Quaker, but there was there was Catholic involved there too. My father's father, my father's uh, father left the Catholic Church and became a Methodist minister, and my father almost became a, a minister also. Mm-hmm. And my mother's father was a renegade Episcopalian minister who was always in trouble with the DAR for his radical. He, he was radical, yeah. Radical wow. left wing, wow. and uh, um, uh, you and your sister both kind of shared those things, Mimi. Yeah, and I have another sister as well who's just never been very public about any of her thoughts and feelings and ideas. But Mimi and I have been. Mimi has run, you know, uh, not a left wing radical organization, but an extraordinary organization in San Francisco for twenty some years now. The, the Bread and Roses. Bread and Roses. Yeah. yeah. What is that? Tell, tell us the, what that. It's um, takes takes entertainment into the the institutions all over the Bay Area from, I mean, about 30 concerts a month. It's a nonprofit organization. Mm. Takes them in there to, you know, they kind of match up the volunteer singers uh, with whether they do well at old people's homes or sp- spinal wards or kids or delinquents. My own son at the moment is in a band called the Collage of Eye. He's playing the African drums, and they're about to go and perform for unwed mothers. Wow. <laughs> I think it's the amazing yeah <laughs> you just you have the one child yeah yeah mm-hmm. was that with with david harris yes uh-huh. Uh-huh. do you see david at all uh no yeah. no i haven't seen him for a while but he's a good guy is he still active politically sometimes he is but mostly he's a writer uh-huh. right now yeah and ha- how about mimi is she singing at all these days she hasn't been singing very much she sang with me at a at the 30th anniversary of esalen hot springs in california because i had lived there back back then right yeah. right but she isn't performing very much I, I, Richard Farina, her her husband yeah. back then, who um, died at a very early age in motorcycle accident. Uh, wonderful songwriter as well as a, a novelist, been down so yes. long. Looks like, looks like up to me. He's one of those people who um, I often wonder about um, what they would have become, what they would yeah. be like um, had had they lived. I, you know, you think back to certain sort of um, old f- film figures. You know, James right. Dean, oh, or yeah. you know, what 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 would James Dean have been like had he had he survived? Would he become like a, a fat sort of a caricature, <laughs> like like Marlon Brando? You know, but I don't know. He might have been more vain. Although it would be hard to think that somebody could be more vain than Brando <laughs> looked. Yeah, right. He just got tired of it. I think. Yeah. But Richard, Richard was like a. He was just wonderful. I still he miss was, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His um, and if you go back and read, um, his his prose, like been down so long, seems like mm-hmm. up to me. It's just it, it's one. It it works for today. I mean, it's this. It's that same kind of vibrant writing that He'll we still be happy love today. This. <laughs> and um, and I still play his. I still play his records. I mean, yeah. the records that he made with your sister are mm-hmm. classics from that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you do something else for us? Sure. Joan Baez. Yeah, Maybe um, something else from uh, from the, the new album? From the album, we thought we would do something that has a folkier sound on it. It's the... Um, 
Strange Rivers. It's, um, yeah. Tell us about this song. John Stewart song. Used to be a member of the Kingston Trio. and um, Another person who did that songwriter show. That's right. Janice Ian did the songwriter show. <laughs> Quit wagging your Joan, finger at me. Joan Baez is going to do the songwriter show. right? Al, you know, I, you know I don't Al, see why not. You know Alan Pepper, mm-hmm. who runs the bottom line. Right? When I told him the other day, I said, guess what I'm going to Joan Baez, he said... Get her to do the songwriter <laughs> show. So. At some point, I'm sure I will. <laughs> okay. So this is a John Stewart song, old song, new song? It's a new song. I just have to tell you something funny about it. When we recorded it, um, we had been all gone off to our separate little booths. There were just three of us working on this song. And I said, hey, you guys, you know, this is crazy. Let's all just go and sit around microphones in the same room. And they said, well, no, that's a hell of a concept. I mean, they had <laughs> never done that. The engineer got his video camera out to film this historic event of people sit- yeah, recording, right. sitting and playing instruments right there with each other. Anyway, that's part of why I think the intimacy, there's, some, there's something very special about how it came out on the record. So Paul does um, the steel on this, okay. <laughs> on his guitar. He simulates the steel on his Run your love to me 
That's Joan Baez and uh, Paul Pesco on the lead guitar here on Idiot's Delight, performing live in the studio. There's a, a, a wonderful Mary Chapin Carpenter song on the new album, on Play Me Backwards. T- tell us about this song. Has, has she recorded? That song? Stones in the Rose? She let me record I, it first. Yeah, so because so, I, you know, I, I just sort of assumed it was like an earlier song and I had forgotten about it or something, and no. I went back... And I said, I have all of Mary Chapin's albums, and I don't see it anywhere. So surprise, it's, surprise. It's a new song, then. And that's very rare, I think, to do that, to give that. She'd written the song and was tossing it around, and, you know, she and the Indigo Girls and I are a group, and we were rehearsing, and she said, oh, here's this song. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? She, she, we're a group called Four Voices, and we've done a number of concerts together, and we were, we're going to probably do a, a tour in the summer. Last summer, you did the Newport... Folk festival, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that okay? Mm-hmm. All right. You and the Indigo Girls and Mary, Mary Chapin Carpenter. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, wow. it is. It's lots of fun. Did 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 you have Jane Scarp and Tony playing bass with you at Me? all? Uh, not bass. I mean cello. Did you uh, no. did she play? Oh, because I know she plays. Oh, with- on one of, on one gig we did that was just uh, an impromptu. Um, Amy Indigo decided she was going to rent the American Music Hall. Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, uh-huh. and on a day's notice, we went in there. Japen wasn't with us, but with the three of us, and they, and she had they had their band then. Oh, okay, because because yeah. um, Jane Scarp and Tony plays with them from time to yeah. time, plays cello. So you guys are going to do that again this uh, hopefully, this summer. Hopefully, this summer we'll go out for I'm, you know, hoping for a few weeks on tour. <laughs> Mary Chapin Carpenter did my uh, my songwriter show <laughs> at the bottom Boy, line. I'm not going to have no choice to speak of. I can tell you that. Well, yeah, but she's a real songwriter. I well, mean, she's just phenomenal. Yeah. And anyway, she said, I, "I'm really decided what to do with this song," and I said, "Give it to me," yeah. and she did. Now. Uh, the, the song is called Stones in the Road. It's a song about um, sort of coming of age and realizing that you've maybe left some of your youthful ideals behind. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Mary Chapin is um, several years younger than you, so mm-hmm. she's uh, approaching it from kind of a different generational thing. But how do you approach it as a singer? Can you take it back to the, the, the 60s generation? Well, it's funny what happens with that song. It's not only in, in English-speaking territory that people seem to get the series of images and relate in a broad sense to what was then and what is now as far as basically yuppiedom. It's really about about yuppiedom. Mm. And 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 do you sing it there's there's always that uh that danger that we fall into as an audience assuming that every single word i sing yeah is well, is you i mean can you assume a character uh, you when you sing you have to a little bit have to a little bit unless you write every single word of every single song mm. you know and so i certainly can sympathize with what the song is about and to some degree or another things are different for me as well you know of course they are i mean and for many years i refused to pay my income taxes that went to the military. I do pay them now, not terribly happily, but because other priorities took over after 10 years, um, and so on, right. you know. And so you, somebody, oh, I'm not gonna get the quote right. But anyway, it, th- things change. And I think being true to one's, oneself is, is, um, is the trick all the way through, you know, all the way through your life. And on the other hand, Gandhi said, compromise, um, Unlike its description in the more sort of vehemently radical circles of people who think they're radical, compromise is a good thing. Compromise is all right as long as you don't compromise your soul. Mm. <laughs> you know. 
what sort of uh, what sort of faith do you put in um, the the hope for something better coming out of uh, the new administration? I mean, do you hold uh, hold out hope that there's really going to be some sort of a change here, or are you perhaps maybe like me a bit a bit more cynical than those who jump on the MTV bandwagon and say, "Oh, great, we got a rock and <laughs> we got a rock and roll president." I'm not quite sure what that means having a rock and roll. Well, president. I really am so cynical about party politics that I've managed to never get involved in it ever. Uh-huh. Um, on the other hand, I can certainly feel that the a lightness of being that's come about. And I was in England on, in fact, on a TV show the night that. Uh, the elections were won, and somebody said, well, how does it feel? How does it feel, Miss Boys? Does it feel any different? And I said, well, you know, even as an old sour grapeser, I had to admit that being a person who's been concerned on behalf of blacks, reds, yellow people, sick people, people with AIDS, homosexuals, poor people, it feels like a step out of the Stone Age. Now, whether or not we're, you know, there's a battle going on in this country right now, or if we're going to leave the Stone Age over the gay issue. Mm. We're right smack in it, and if nothing else, it's healthy that it's being aired. You know, it's it being aired, and our public reaction is not too terrific. Yeah, right. You know, right. Um, personally, I wish gays would do something other than try to be in the military. military. Yeah, I, mean, I like, think that stinks. That sort of that sort of always has, has bothered me about you know women looking for equal yeah, rights in the military. Right. It's like let's disband why the I military. Why do want to be a goddamn sergeant? You know, why aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's listen to this song that was written by Mary Chapin Carpenter called "Stones in the Road." It's from the Joan Baez album called "Play Me Backwards."
have been replaced by souls out on the street. We give a dollar when we pass and hope our eyes don't meet. We pencil in, we cancel out, we crave the corner sweet. We kiss your ass, we make you hold, we doctor the receipt. country music, the fact that there are writers like Mary Chapin Carpenter who kind of fit into the overall umbrella of country music and um, are writing songs like that Mm -hmm. as opposed to what we sort of always traditionally think of as being songs that don't have social as social irrelevance Mm -hmm. as as that. Um, How do you respond to people who say, there's a lot of people from our generation who say, ah, there hasn't been a good song written or recorded since, you know, Hendrix died or, or whatever, you know? How, how do you respond to people who, who just totally discount everything that's that's going on now? Because there's wonderful songs oh. being written now, <laughs> wonderful songwriters now. You just have yeah. to listen. I think what happens is... Um, you there's something that you want to rehear you want to hear it to sound the way it sounded back then mm. and i think that also comes out of the of the vacuum that i was talking about a wonderful song can be written but if it isn't kind of got an atmosphere to be to have some meaning in it doesn't have a context you know it's hard for a song to have a context when there's nothing going on or mm. there's nothing tangible going around i can't say nothing going on there have been things going on all of these last 20 years but they haven't f- made us feel as though there's glue as though there's some kind of cohesion between us and so those songs can be written and they kind of kind of float off well there there was um, that cohesion that you're talking about that sense of community where you could get people from various backgrounds and various with various musical tastes and you could bring them together mm-hmm. in the 60s the way bill graham did it the, at the mm-hmm. old fillmores where you'd have mm-hmm. miles davis playing on the same bill with the who mm-hmm. and and richie havens and ravi shankar you know it was like mm-hmm. and the audiences were interested in all those different kinds of music and it seems now that um 
it's harder to find a large group of people mm-hmm. that's willing to expand their musical horizons mm-hmm. and get involved in other kinds of music. People are out there. Obviously, mm-hmm. they're doing it. Somebody is supporting um, all of this stuff. But there's, but that that overall sense of community. Um, maybe it, did it exist? Maybe it didn't exist then. Maybe right. it was just a, fa- a figment of our imaginations, and maybe it was a, a product of the media. You no, know, maybe I, the counterculture wasn't as huge and as important as we thought it was. Back I think then. it was pretty important. I yeah. think it was pretty important. I think it was. Well, girls, you can't get too big, or it's not a counterculture anymore. Yeah, right. You know, but um, well, there's a thing that's coming to my mind, which may be too cynical to say, but I know you'll appreciate it, and it has to do with. I think, with what you're talking about. I met a Kurdish Turk when I was visiting um, southern Turkey, and this guy was uh, an extraordinary man and very funny. I was walking, leaving Ephesus ruins in the dark, and I heard this voice say, beautiful lady, will you step on my Turkish carpet? Well, I said, sure. I didn't even (laughs) look to see who it was. It was such a wonderful thing to say. Anyway, we got talking, very bright and very funny. And he could see that I was fairly cynical about world affairs. And he said, do you know what is the difference between yogurt and the American people? I said, no. And he said, yogurt has a living culture. <laughs> so think about it. <laughs> you know, this is a Turk in the, you know, off in the boondocks of Turkey. Um, but something about the context, there is culture here. Yeah. But why is it that we don't tend to connect with it? Why is it that people, why is it that in a sense the the most um, visible, the visibly shocking and important music to many, many people is rap, Mm. you know, which is, which fascinates me. Which is, it's important music. Exactly, exactly. But the culture, the culture tends to become uh, uh, homogenized and and, uh, codified and defined by other forces. And, and people like yourself with this show are the are the first formats that are coming out of, a, of, a, of an, an era of total rigidity on on the radio well, well see I've been doing this since 1967 so I, I never changed right. so I keep getting fired you know from jobs and they mm-hmm. finally find a place for me <laughs> on Sunday night where I can do no harm to the overall general ratings of of the station mm-hmm. you know and they can they can point to it and say oh well we had Joan Baez on with Vin the other night right. see that's like a cool thing to do you know but but um, it hasn't exactly been uh, you know an, an easy thing to do no I just remember back way way back when when most of the stations played whatever the hell they wanted to play you know eclectic and bizarre and wonderful and and then there came this time period where it was very hard you know there's just come formula and the formula got stricter and stricter and stricter. well just like just like everything else m- money became the important mm-hmm. factor and once money enters to that great extent then people mm-hmm. have to be able to control it mm-hmm. you know people have to be able to define it and 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 apply demographic studies to it and everything mm-hmm. else you know to, so that there's no risk or or as little risk um, uh, in, in involved as possible, and that's certainly n- never been something that you've done throughout your your life. You've always taken risks, and and I think with the new album, you've you've taken risks as well, and it's paying off for you because people are responding to it. And in fact, you entered the video age too, didn't you? With that, <laughs> with the Mary Chapin Carpenter song. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, the, My friends said, "Oh boy, that must have been really difficult for you," you know, because they know me as the old stick in the mud, rigid, etc. So it was that, you know, was that really a big compromise? And I thought, gosh, all I was thinking about was, do I get to take home the clothes <laughs> that they wanted me to try on to bring in this $200,000 wardrobe? And I was thinking, oh, goody, what do I get to take home? I mean, you know, there's a big child in me. There's a big somebody sure. who missed out in the 60s. I don't have a lot of nostalgia about the 60s because I didn't have very much fun. 
I didn't. You know, I wasn't doing psychedelics and, and being a flower child. I was busy going to jail and being way too, in some senses, personally too serious. Yeah, yeah. Although I think th- the difficulty with our age may be that people tend to take themselves too seriously. I think we have to be serious about something. But it probably should be something other than ourselves. But in the process of that, even back then, I didn't get to have a very good time. And so when I this video, I just got in a certain mindset, and I was like a six-year-old. It was, oh, whoopee, good yeah. to get trying all these clothes and trapes around and do a video. Well, did, did they let you keep any of it? Um, sh- <laughs> All right. <laughs> Great. Joan Baez is my guest here on Idiot's Delight. Uh, it's 92.3 K-Rock. So um, I'm, I'm thinking back again now to that era, like the Don't Look Back era, mm-hmm. in light of what you're, what you're saying now, when everybody was just like totally over the edge in terms of the psychedelics, the drugs, <laughs> the uppers, mm-hmm. the downers, the alcohol, the whatever, mm-hmm. were you always like... Miss Prim. Yeah. Yeah. Except that I took a lot of sleeping pills to get to sleep, uh-huh. you know, and I took tranquilizers and they were given to me by doctors. In other words, I was sitting on a lot of serious anxieties and I didn't look upon those things as drugs. I mean, I didn't do pot and hash and psychedelics and coke and all the stuff that everybody had a jolly time with. I, you know, I was busy suppressing anxieties. I think that's really clearly wow. what it was. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I did, I did my share in that way, but I was not part of that. Right. You know, and did did you did you look down upon everybody else? Did you have I like a so. moral superiority that you weren't engaged in? I this think thing? I did. Yes, I think I did. And I think when I was honest, I knew that the reason I didn't try any of it was because I was scared to death of it. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I wasn't honest all that much of the time, but yeah. Let me let me totally change the subject. How did you feel when Vanguard Records was purchased by Lawrence Welk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a switch. Well, I went to visit old Lawrence. He has a putting green on the top floor of the building where they have the record. Company. Are you serious? I am serious. Hmm. He was putting um, golf balls. Is he still? Is Lawrence still with us? Or well, did he... that was a few years ago, so I, I can't answer your question. I, he's I, passed on, hasn't oh, he? Yes. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> but um. All of the old albums are uh, are in print again they now. They are, I uh, gotta say in that. In CD and, form. And we have a box set coming out of this of you know lots of unreleased stuff that's been due out for a year and is almost ready coming wow. out from the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Great, you know? great. If I showed you this album, which is one of my favorite Joan Baez albums, Any yeah. Day Now, which was a uh, was a, originally a double LP set back in yeah. the days of LPs of Bob Dylan songs, would you would you be able to pick a song that I could play from it? Oh, sure. That I, you know, I would play from the CD, not that you would play live. You're, you're thinking that I can read this without my glasses, aren't you? <laughs> well, I'll just pretend I can, and I'll name something. Oh, you know which ones I really love is, um, I love Red Wing and um, Boots of Spanish Leather. Boots of Spanish Leather. Yeah. Right, let me see which mm-hmm. track it is. Cause I, I got my glasses on. I can see. Track 14. <laughs> Boy, this guy's bummed out. Isn't he? <laughs> Let me play this from uh, an album that dates back to what, 1967, 68, yes. or thereabouts. An album of Bob Dylan songs called Any Day Now.
from a real old Joan Baez album, an album called Any Day Now. Um, 
recordings of Bob Dylan songs. The current Joan Baez album, the album called Play Me Backwards, is, as I understand it, nominated for Grammy? Yes, is it is. Yeah, yeah, Best Contemporary Folk Record. You betcha, Red Rider. This is, this, this is not the first time, or is it? Uh, I think I've had three nominations. Oh, maybe, you'll, maybe this time has come for hey. Joan Baez to get a Grammy. Well, I think so, but that's probably not enough. <laughs> <laughs> um... I guess one of the most one of the most successful songs, one of the most successful recordings for you was um, back in what the mid seventy five or seventies. Was it was it what, what was the relationship between Diamonds and Rust and Rolling Thunder? Was it around the same? Did you write it after mm, Rolling Thunder? No, it was before Rolling Thunder. Before Rolling Thunder. The thing with that was it was the first time I had really applied myself anywhere near the way I'm applying myself right yeah. now to the to the writing and the music. And, you know, I played the synthesizer. They got some guy in to play the synthesizer, and I didn't like what he was doing, so I nudged him out of the way. I mean, I just hadn't gotten that involved before, and it paid off. Also, it, it sure did. I mean, what an, inc- an incredibly successful song it was for you. Was was part of that? Do you think just because people were like you know kind of voyeuristic or whatever, and they were getting off on the fact that you were writing what seemed to be a very personal song about relationships and stuff, and that the Dylan thing was happening with Rolling Thunder and all oh, that? No, I, mean, I had people think about, it was about all sorts of things. I think it was just happened to be a good song. Yeah. I mean, I haven't written that many good songs. I think that was one of them. But to start out of the box with that one, that's <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible. <laughs> Would you do it for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. I'd be so excited. I would be happy to. Okay.
Goosebumps here, Joan Baez. God, that is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for and doing that. And thank you, that. Paul. I gotta say, uh, Paul Pesco. Paul definitely gets to the goosebump <laughs> category for me because he played different every time. Every time we do it, he just does something different. That's gorgeous. Thanks. Thank you. Um, this is a commercial radio station. I know it doesn't. <laughs> it hasn't hey, sounded go. like one for a couple hours here, I but know let it. me pause here and do this, and then um, mm-hmm. maybe we'll maybe one more song. From from the new album, perhaps, Absolutely. and uh, and then I'll let you go. You didn't bargain for this, did you? You didn't, bar- <laughs> you didn't think you were going to move in for the night. Joan Baez, my guest here on Idiot's Delight. Listen longer to WXRK New York for guaranteed twenty song music marathons and classic rock on ninety two three K Rock. The other day, I'm putting away some boots in my western shop, and the phone rings. Full of VCRs. Good for your teeth. Great taste too. Who wants to? What little English is real good. The ten at night. Um, l- let me ask you a question, Joan Baez, about this song on uh, on the new album called "I'm With You." Mm-hmm. Um, is this a song? Is this a, a a parent singing to a child? Or I mean, oh, I, I guess it could be interpreted in a bunch of ways, but I get that feeling that it's a parent sending a child off. For me, it was. 
I think for Wally and Kenny, who did the words with me, it was probably something else. And hopefully if a song is a good one, it can be different things for different yeah. people, obviously. I mean, there's a, there's a... I've had moms come up and say, oh, I can relate to that. Uh. <laughs> it is sending a kid <laughs> off. How old is your son? He's 23. And, he, and as you mentioned earlier, he's a musician. Huh? He is turning into a musician, yeah, up until a year ago. And people said, is your son going to be a musician? I'd say, nah. And then all of a sudden I realized he was serious about his drumming. So uh-huh. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay. Would you do that song for us? Oh, I'd love to. It's Great. really, it's uh, the title is I'm With You in parenthesis, whether you like it or not, forever. Uh, you know? yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that, that's that, that blood tie, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. Okay, Polly.
Well, Joan Baez, it has been um, worth the wait for me. <laughs> well, absolutely my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you so much for spending time with us Thank here tonight you. on Idiot's Delight. The album, Play Me Backwards, is um, out there available at your local record and CD stores. Everybody should go out and buy a copy of it because it's, it's a wonderful um, new rebirth for, for Joan Baez. This, tonight, I couldn't ask for anything more. <laughs> Thank you. An absolute pleasure. Joan Baez and um, Mr. Pesco. Thank you very much. Paul, right? right. Paul Pesco. Wonderful guitar player. Where are you, uh, where are you from? What's I'm the deal? from New York. Are you, are you really? I'm a local boy. Oh, all right. So, yeah. Cool. I, I do a lot of uh, recording sessions, so I guess I can qualify as a session guitar player. Okay. Well, he also works with Madonna, so I figure one of his jobs is he just does the Madonnas. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> Joan, thank you so much, and we'll see you again, hopefully at the bottom line sometime, one of those songwriter shows, huh? All Come right. on, Joan. All Come right, on. all right. Joan Baez. Good night. On a park bench Bound a broad highway somewhere When the music from the carillon Seemed to hurl your heart out there Past the scientific darkness Past the fireflies that float To an angel
Well, wasn't that fun, huh? Wasn't that special? Joan Baez, my guest tonight here on Idiot's Delight. This is WXRK New York. I'm Vince Gelsa. It's a couple of minutes past 11. We still got a bunch of hours to go. Lots more music for you.